Hey, I'm glad you're here today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. It must have been New Year's Day when I came across these lines from a T.S. Eliot poem, The Last of His Four Quartets. For last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice, and to make an end is to make a beginning. As so often happens when I'm working on an upcoming show, this random encounter helped me give shape to a nebulous thought that had been slipping around in my head for months. How might choosing to be curious about language influence our understanding, use, or eventual evolution of the very words we use to express curiosity or anything else? I recently read The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams, which rekindled my interest in what words are recognized, by whom, and under what circumstances. And our theme got me thinking again about cultural and linguistic determinants around how we describe and express curiosity. So my head is spinning with the words of power and the power of words and who wields what power around what words we know and use and who might explore that with me. Enter Sonja Lanehart, professor of linguistics and faculty fellow at the University of Arizona. She was editor of the Oxford Handbook of African American Language, published in 2015, and is now serving on the advisory board for the forthcoming Oxford Dictionary of African American English. Dr. Lanehart is particularly interested in African American women's language and pushing the boundaries of research and sociolinguistics and language variation to be anti racist inclusive, diverse, and equitable in the fight for social and linguistic justice. Just after we sat down, she was headed to a conference to wrestle with some of these very questions. Actually, the Linguistic Society of America meets with American Dialect Society, and we will be working, since we're talking about words, that's the group that started the Words of the Year. And so we have been in preparation for that, and we will be doing the final nominations and voting on the words of the year this week. Oh, wow. Have you got any favorites? Are you allowed to, are you allowed to tip your hand? I don't have any favorites. I, I nominated a few words, but I usually discover more words than I ever nominate. uh, Oh, interesting. When I go. So I have to ask, are there any words in contention this year or in kind of the last couple of years, around curiosity? Around curiosity. I mean, I I think that the closest, the first thing that comes to my mind would be woke. Oh, Uh, yeah. So talk more about that. Well, I was just thinking about that in this anti-wokeness phase. So that's one of the, so I say that I don't think of myself as a lexicographer. However, (laughs) because of my relationship with the American Dialect Society and their publication, American Speech, I have on several occasions provided provided descriptions for words, right? So for last year, one of the words that I provided a description for was anti-woke. Part of this was this movement against the word and the meaning of woke. And so there's been this going on. And so ironically, I think of anti-wokeness as sort of a lack of curiosity, yes. whereas woke is all about curiosity and you know allowing your your mind and yourself to to reimagine to to awaken 
to things that you in ways that you hadn't thought about it before. So I, I think that's probably the it's the first and probably the best one I can think of. I like that. So this is your area of expertise. Why do words matter? I mean, why do the words that we choose, why do the words that we celebrate year to year matter? They matter because people matter, right? And because language is inextricably linked with the people who use it and who create it and who are involved in its change. It is an entity of which we are a part and it's expressed in all sorts of ways, right? We can verbally express it, we can sign it, we can write it, we can paint it or mold it or sculpt it in all of those sorts of ways. And so I think that's the that's why the, the richness and importance of. And in, in a way that, that we often talk about language, I think it's it is a at least the way I view it. And I don't know if everyone views it that way, but I, I see it as uh, uniquely human in the way that we at least thought, think about and talk about language. So it's not that other species don't have communication, but I don't know of any that have language in the way that we can talk about it as a human expression and experience. Hmm. So what then does linguistic justice look like? Oh, well, this is, I, I think that's a really big topic. You know, well, one of the things that people will say would be something like, let's address issues around decolonizing language. And so, well, then what, what does that look like? So if, if Europeans created all of these words like Asia, what is Asia? What is Africa? What is, but the peoples in those spaces, right, don't see it in that particular way, hadn't thought of it in that particular way. Other people's language. Yeah. Right. Which is, that's another book by, <laughs> by another well-known uh, educational linguist, Lisa Delpit. The other one's April Baker Bell. Uh, but she has a book called Other People's Children, actually. This, so this notion about talking about language and linguistic justice is really fraught with all of these sorts of things of how do you begin to dismantle all of that and think about this in a different way that is inclusive, that is understanding and respectful and open to other people's ideas and opinions that are not yours because they come from a space and from a history that's not the same as yours. Right. And it's particularly fraught when you're trying to do that, when the tool that you are using Yes. is shaped in the process that you're trying to deconstruct or unpack. Right. Which is Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord all day long, right? Uh, and I think about that like every time. Right. Like, uh, you know, how am I contributing to linguistic justice or injustice? Mm -hmm. So so that makes your efforts with the Oxford Dictionary of African American English really interesting and important. And I wonder if you can talk about how this fits in that context. Okay. I am on the advisory board for the project. This is Mellon, NSF, Oxford University, Harvard University, Hutchins Center, that's run by Henry Louis Gates Jr. project. He and the editor at Oxford came together constructed this board, and then we meet and talk about what types of words should be included. And in part because this isn't going to be an exhaustive or all-inclusive, right? So the goal of this, it's at the end of three years to actually have something that people can 
use to have 10,000 words. It's been interesting thinking about that. It's in part because, like I said, linguistic justice is part of this larger thing. And for me, that has to do with racial justice and equity, right? And so I have in the back of my mind, what does this look like within community and without outside of community? And so when we had this meeting and we're talking about categories of words, there were some categories that I was uncomfortable with. I was like, you know, if we only have 10,000, what should we focus on? How do you choose? And so they came to us with a, a category that was like drug culture and something. And there was another category. And I was just like, I no, I just, that doesn't sit well with me. And it's not that those words aren't part of every culture. It's, but it was like within this context, I don't want those to be a part of the first words that we think about when we think about what are the most significant and relevant words for languages right. in African-American community. Right. Well, it feels as if that would be simply... Stereotypical. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many other categories. Yeah. Why go there? Yeah. 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 And so I wanted to do this from the from an inward facing look of is me as an African-American woman who's from the South, who grew up in working class neighborhoods and have a, you know, I have this particular perspective. It's like, what are those things that were most meaningful for me? Right. And those weren't it. There were no, I didn't have exposure to drugs growing up in that way. But I do know things that are relevant then and relevant to me now, hair and body and being in a space, those are prevalent, right? Yes. So there are all sorts of words are related to that. And sure, we can think about things that have to do with slang. So those words that we think about that are hip and cool, right? And especially in the age of Black Twitter and all of the ways that words have been reclaimed and repurposed and retooled. Think about Michael Harriet and his White Peopleologist Awards, right? So, you know, on Twitter, white people, it's like W-Y-P-I-P-O, white people. And so he has this, he's like the white peopleologist. That has more significance and relevance for me Right. Than talking about drug and drugs and sex. Uh-huh. So, so did you prevail in this discussion? Yes, I did. All right, <laughs> I was not the only one, I'm, or at least I'm at the moment, I feel I feel I have prevailed. We'll see. We have another meeting that's coming up, so I'll see where we're at at that point. But I'm really excited about this because it'll be the first of its kind. It'll be on the style of an Oxford Dictionary in the sense that we'll have this etymological history and it will ground this in sociocultural context in ways that we haven't had for any dictionary related to African-American language before. And so I think it'll be a real eye opener. And I say that because one of the things I think for a lot of people who get into this work, one of the first things that you're confronted with is legitimacy. Like, how do I make people understand that African-American language is legitimate? It's real. It's all of these things, right? And I think that's that's behind a lot of the, the work, trying to convince people of something, right? So I think this dictionary helps in that, that goal in the sense that you can provide this historical context, right? This is not new. This has been a part of the, you know, these... This, this group of people, uh, it didn't just happen. It's not made, you know, it's, it's, it's no more made up than any other language, right? All languages, all words are made up. Uh, that's one of the first things my son learned and throws back at me often. 
oh, mom, all words are made up. So <laughs> so I noticed, too, that you're crowdsourcing the words for consideration anyway. And I wondered, is that typical? Is that hmm. an innovation on the part of this effort? I think in lexicographical work, uh, crowdsourcing is pretty typical. In linguistic work, crowdsourcing is pretty typical. It's really important to have people who are representative from different areas of the country, right? Different sorts of experiences. I'm rooted in a much more Southern experience, but that's very different from the people that I know who are from New York in the Northeast, right? And those who are from California or from Minnesota, right? We have very different experiences. It's really important because those experiences then get uh, represented in terms of the words that you use. I think that is going to contribute to sort of a richness that we have with this dictionary that, again, that we hadn't seen. I would I would certainly think so. I mean, to me, I, I harvest what I call curiosity practices, ways mm-hmm. that people bring more curiosity into their lives, you know, habits, little tricks of the trade, routines maybe that they have. And it sounds to me that that's actually kind of a curiosity practice that you all are using in bringing mm-hmm. this this project to fruition. And I wonder if there are other curiosity practices you have as a linguist, as somebody who thinks about the tool that we use to express our ideas. Does anything come to mind? Yes, it does, actually. Because I was thinking about what I said earlier, when I say a lot of people who come to this work are doing it because they they feel a commitment to trying to legitimize the language that they grew up with. And that's a part of who they are in this academic context and in a society that tells you every day that that's not true, right? And so I was thinking about that in the sense of When I started, how I got to this space was, was, was really curiosity, right? Uh So I'm a curious person in general. I I tell people, you know, I could be a lifelong student, right? I'm a professor because I get to be in school, but I, you know, (laughs) I'm always thinking about, can I get a degree in X? Can someone pay me to go back to school to do Y? And so I think when I started this years ago in undergraduate college, it was through curiosity about language and also really curiosity about the language of Black people that I had grown up with. My first sole author book is called Sis to Speak, and that book was based upon my dissertation work that I did, and it really was about a journey for me and how I got involved in language and why I did that, why I specifically do what I do which is look at language in African-American communities, but that community started with my own personal community. It was curious, so I had questions, right? So I was asking questions. And I'm thinking about, so even like the, the first book I did, which was an edited book from a conference, all of the chapters, all of the people that I asked to participate in that, those also, all of their chapters, assignments that I gave them were questions. I, I actually, I think I still do that. I still ask questions, right? I'm known for asking questions. But I'm also thinking about this in terms of, is curiosity a luxury for African-American linguists because of going back to that idea of always having to prove that this is legitimate? And so I think about this in terms of uh, 
the people who really started out doing a lot of work in African-American language were white people. They were known for this, right? Bill Above, Walt Wolfram. These are people who were, were doing work about African-American language, but weren't black. And so a lot of this arose because of Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement. And what do we do with these, all of these black kids who are now a part of public education and we need to, you know, we need to educate them, but they're coming into this space with a different language and different cultural practices, et cetera. So education sort of did this turn to focus on thinking about black kids from a deficit perspective, right? They're coming into this space without X, Right, without as opposed language, to with without Y Z A B C. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so that's how that's how language that's how African American language is often approached. Like, how do we bring these kids up to speed? How do we incorporate their language so that they can learn? How do how do we understand their language so that we can translate it into this other thing and make it acceptable in this space? Right. And so a lot of work early in this field was devoted to that. And then, you know, I'd say I've spent a better part of my career trying to build community within, among, within and amongst African-Americans who work on language and linguistics in whatever way, shape that might be. And this community has grown tremendously uh, or significantly over the course of the 25 years that I've been in this area. And so for the, so for the first times, Right. Instead of there being a focus on, you know, copula variation or what have you, black people are actually getting into this and they're actually asking questions that are personal out of curiosity mm. about their identities in this space, as opposed to I've got to prove this thing. And so I think part of it is, you know, to what extent do Black scholars get to be curious versus carrying a weight of, I've got something to prove. And I think that has existed within research of looking at language in African-American communities. And we're just now really getting to a, a space of Black people, Black scholars coming into this field can be curious and not just, I've got this burden of proof to prove to you that this is legitimate, that this makes sense, to counteract your ideas about deficit and negativity, right? I can be curious about language in the way that other people have been curious and carefree about how they look at language. And I, that's why I think right now is, is just one of the most amazing times that I get to see in my field. That is very cool. And it, it resonates with other conversations I've had with people about sort of the power dynamics around curiosity in the academy mm -hmm. and whose questions are, are okay to ask and who's mm -hmm. not allowed to ask questions. I mean, I hope that what that means is that, that that's progress, right? That we're sort of moving yes. into a direction where like, these are legitimate questions and there's, there's legitimately a whole body of work here. And now the question is like, well, what are the questions we ask and what mm -hmm. do we discover in that process? And I know you've said that if language doesn't change, it dies. Mm -hmm. And, and I think of that in this context, because we can't know if language is changing or dying, unless 
were inquisitive about the state of its health. Well, I don't know if there's a consciousness in that respect, but I do know it, this, is, this has a lot to do with the people using the language, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as long as you have the people and the people are using their language, I don't think, I don't know if there's a conscious decision. I don't think there's consciousness around, oh, it's changing in particular ways, other than the fact that you know that you use new words, right? you create new things, right? right? No, I, I think you're right about that. I don't, Yeah. well, although I want to ask you, Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you're an absolutist on this. If language doesn't change, it dies. You know, I definitely have some new word peeves, things that I just can't say out loud. Everybody else is using mm-hmm. them. I can't. Yeah. Do you have that same reaction? And how does that fit oh, yeah. Everybody into has our idea needs. of evolution? I don't think for me it's not about evolution. It's just uh, I just think it's about how, you know, how you enter into the world and, and these. So I can tell you, I have pet peeves. I tell my students this. So one of my pet peeves, I said, not that there's anything wrong with it. I just don't like it. It just grates my ears. When either the people who pronounce like O words, O-R words as uh, with ah instead of O, right? So I say orange, not uh-huh. orange, uh-huh. right? I heard orange <laughs> or Florida or like it just, I'm like, I'm sorry. I just don't understand. I can't do it, Right. So, so I have pet peeves, but I don't say those people are horrible and they should, you know, that language should never, it's like, I just, it's not what I use. And I'm sure there are other things that I find wonderful and other people are just like, that just grates my ears, right? Well, and so many of those things are regional or. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I don't, so I, and I say that after just having read earlier this morning, what is that? Is it Empire State University or Emporia? State University that does the words that should be banished every year. They do the banished words. So American oh, Society uh-huh. is more positive. We do uh-huh. positive words. So they banished, and one of their banished words was uh, uh, it's the the and it's probably probably maybe one of yours too. So instead of irrespective, what's the what's the other word that people irregardless? Use yes, that's it. I, I can't uh, believe I, that. Not a word. <laughs> I, and that's what they were saying. It's not a word. I love that word. I love it. All right, it. convince me. Convince it. me. Why do you love it? I don't have, you don't have to use it. You don't have to believe me. But I just there's just something about the way the word sounds that I like. Uh, uh, okay. And and actually in this in this discussion of it, it's like well, some people they they gave away the idea or they got rid of the idea that it's a it's a double negative, right? And so it doesn't make sense in that way, but it's just not a word, right? And I'm just like, I never even think about it that way. Uh-huh. I do think about it in the sense that I know that ear plus regardless, I know, I understand all of that. And it's not a word that I will use <laughs> particularly, <laughs> right? Because I, but it's a word that I like. Uh-huh. I actually, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that distinction. Um, thank you. That's a that's a helpful reframe for me. I appreciate that. Yes. I appreciate. That I guess maybe the same way that some people there are words that people they're like the most uh, words that people don't like categorically. You know, across the spectrum, people don't like words like moist. Right? They talk about that, but in the same way, I think that there are just some words that can just sound. You like the right how it flows, you, how it comes off your tongue, how it rattles yeah. in your head. I like it. Yes. I like it. That's yes. wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. That is great. And I just, 
you know, I love it when my guests give me a completely different way to think about something and you have just done that. So thank you. Thank you. Well, before I let you go, I want to invite you to do my big jar of wannabe analogies with me. So this is a literal big jar. I -hmm. have slips of paper in here. Uh, I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for our audience. And we're going to make analogies to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay. Um, You're going first. I will go first if you, (laughs) yes, I will go first. Okay. Uh, So mine is candy cane. How is curiosity like a candy cane? And yours is water. How is curiosity like water? And then I've got one for the audience. So, okay. Candy cane. Um, Curiosity is like a candy cane. Well, candy canes have a, a, like, have a sort of that bright, you know, peppermint taste, which I find actually kind of is sort of energizing and clarifying. Like I, I suck on a candy cane and I just feel like I, like it brightens my thinking. Um, And Mm -hmm. I feel like curiosity does the same thing, that it's sort of this thing that you can use to brighten your thinking. I don't know if other people have that experience of candy canes, but that's my experience. So how, is curiosity like water? Water, that's an easy one. Uh, and it's just so funny because I'm thinking about it as, even though I refuse to see Avatar for all sorts of reasons, the shape of water, right? Like I like that, that this idea. Um, water uh, is just so significant, right? Mm. I live in Arizona. Water is, it's not just precious, it's sacred uh, for some communities, right? Like water is really important. What does water exist like in this space? I think curiosity and water to me seem very, at least certainly analogous in the sense of all of the ways and shapes that it exists, um, ways that we can experience it and explore it, right? Um, the first thing that came to my mind or one of the first things that came to my mind in thinking about this analogy was science, right? Water is an ever sort of scientific exploration through curiosity because water can be gas, it can be liquid, it can be solid, right? It has all of these shapes and ways of existing that provide us with opportunities to discover. I love it. Thank you. That's wonderful. And audience, yours is serendipity. How is curiosity like serendipity? Let me know. So I got the easy one. social media hashtag analogy. Well, Sanja, thank you so much for this, for this conversation and for the reframe. I feel like I got a real gift today. So thank you. I I feel the same way in thinking about language and curiosity and uh, some of the things that I expressed to you today, I hadn't really talked with other people about or thought about, but you have definitely given me uh, some roads to explore, um, especially as I head into going to a conference this week. So I I appreciate that. I'm glad we were able to have the conversation. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media, Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your serendipity analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my intrepid guest, Dr. Sanja Lanehart. Links to her work and submission forms for crowdsourcing of the Oxford Dictionary of African American English on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Tuck and Point, 
by One Such Village via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. 